anyway, I'm Robert Kelly. I am one of the pastors here at the church. Welcome to the series that we're calling Miracles Happen. It is not called abstinence. Even though the art says abstinence, this was, in fact, the art we used for the postcard talking about one particular miracle, which we thought was very, very funny because, of course, the virgin birth, clearly it was the only time that abstinence didn't work, and so we thought this was very funny. We hope many of you did. Uh, we hope lots of people did, and we also recognize that not everybody appreciates our humor. And so if any of your friends or neighbors are particularly offended, you can give them my phone number and have them call me. They just have to queue up behind the other people who are calling me to complain about our sense of humor. Um, so anyway, uh, the series is called Miracles Happen. And when we started this, we were, you know, I made the assumption that uh, when it comes to the idea of the virgin birth, that most everyone was going to think, you know, unless you were a devout follower of Jesus, that most everyone else was kind of moving away from believing in something like the virgin birth. And I thought we would have to make a very extended defense of it for even people who were sitting here. Then I started coming across some statistics that said that's actually not the case. That even in our day and age, surprisingly, the number of Americans who believe in the virgin birth is at 73%. So even today, I thought that was a little bit surprising. Of all of Americans, 73% actually do believe that Jesus was born to a virgin. If you take gospel-centered Christians, but mostly the kinds of folks that, are, you know, that, that make beacon their home, you believe in the Bible, you think that Jesus really does matter for humanity, he is the way to salvation, and you know you kind of adhere to the historic beliefs of the Christian faith, 96% of them believe in the virgin birth. Where we start to see things shift is when we start thinking in terms of uh, the different groups within America, like the millennials, for instance. The millennials are down to 68%. And so what we're seeing, and I think what we are experiencing, and what I kind of my instincts were saying, is that things are shifting away from a belief. So as the older folks, as you all die off, and the younger folks take over, there, the, the, there will be less and less people who still believe that Jesus was born to a virgin. And even if you do believe it, if you were forced to defend it, I think most of us would still tend to do it somewhat sheepishly. Like we might even say, well, yeah, I believe in the virgin birth because, well, you know, I have faith. Now that would be like our, the whole of our argument. You know, I think it's true because Jesus said it was true or something like that. But we wouldn't be able to offer much more of a defense against those who would attack it or question it. And they do attack it. Many times you will find stuff. For instance, Nicholas Kristof, a New York Times columnist, he said it like this, and I love the subtle shift that he threw at us. The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. The heart is a wonderful organ, but so is the brain. So you get what he's saying here, of course, right? He's saying, listen, if you want to believe in the virgin birth, go ahead. I mean, you know what? You want a more mystical kind of religion? Go ahead. It's just unfortunate, you know, that you can't use your brain and still have faith. You know, that's how many approach this conversation. So is that the case? Can only idiots and those with blind faith accept the virgin birth? Or perhaps you're like one of the many Christians I've heard over the years say, I like to believe in Christianity, and I like to believe in the whole Jesus story. I just want to believe in it without all of the miracle stuff. 
I, I like the, the essence of it, but not the rest of it. So we try to separate those out as if that were in any way possible, as the reading of the Bible would tell us. So we're going to be taking a look at this kind of stuff, the miracles, specifically this morning, the virgin birth, uh, over the course of this whole series as we argue the idea that miracles do happen. So open in a Bible to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And as you do that, I just want to put a couple clarifiers out there for us. So a lot of times when we talk about the virgin birth, people ask about the Immaculate Conception. And there's kind of this idea, even though most of us here were raised Catholic, and I understand that, many of us were, for whatever reason, we have come to believe that the Immaculate Conception is a doctrine related to the birth of Jesus. And that isn't actually the case. Right? So when we talk about the Immaculate Conception, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't immaculately conceived or anything like that. What I'm saying is when we talk about that as a doctrine, that is a Catholic doctrine from the 1800s that is in reference to Mary's immaculate conception. The doctrine states that Mary was conceived without original sin and she lived a sinless life for the rest of her life. So that's the doctrine of the immaculate conception. So if you're talking about the immaculate conception, please don't do it in reference to Jesus. Because they're, they're, those two should never, you, you don't talk about, you talk about the virgin birth, you talk about the immaculate conception. Now, I don't believe that because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think that is a Catholic doctrine. I understand that many, uh, many Catholics would still hold to that today. Uh, we just, I just don't believe that Mary was conceived without original sin. I think she really did need a savior. I don't think she lived a sinless life uh, or anything like that. I think the Bible doesn't teach any of that. We also, while we're on the topic, we may as well talk about Mary being forever a virgin, uh, which is also uh, a big part of uh, Catholic uh, teaching and theology. Uh, many Catholics uh, do believe that even to this day, and uh, many in the early centuries did in fact teach this. Uh, I just don't think that that is what the Bible says. I think that after uh, the simplest reading of the Bible, the most straightforward reading, is that after the birth of Jesus, that Mary and Joseph really did get it on and have lots of other kids. And so there it is for the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, simplest reading of the Bible. But what does the Bible actually say about the virgin birth? So let's read the account in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who were highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So why is the miracle of the virgin 
birth believable? Well, let's consider all miracles that were surrounding the birth of Jesus at the time, just kind of generically for a moment. The, the writer of Luke, Luke the apostle, the way he explains what happened here is that he researched everything there was to know about the early days of Christ and how he lived and how he died and his resurrection. He researched it. He spoke to the actual participants. He went to the sources and he recorded it for us. He's writing it and claiming that he has first-hand experience of these things and that he has interviewed the actual people themselves, eyewitness testimony that he has recorded for us. We also have the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke is the one we're looking at now, and John. These amount to four different eyewitness testimonies of the miracles that took place around the birth of Christ. These are primary sources written as history and claimed to be history. Why is it that we don't accept them like we accept the writings of others from antiquity? See, we, we forget they're not just the Bible. They're not just the Gospels. They're actually ancient documents that exist to this day in museums and in universities around the world. You can go look at the hundreds and thousands of copies of these manuscripts from antiquity that claim to be eyewitness accounts. And the people who wrote it, most all of them gave their lives believing it. Meaning they, they would have lived had they rejected it, but they were willing to die, which means at the very least, whether or not it was true, they believed it was true which is way more than we can say about most of the kinds of things we produce today in our current media climate. You know, in the day of fake news, which is really funny that we get to talk about fake news because it's actually less reliable today than what you could have gotten from eyewitness accounts even 100 years ago. And you keep going back in history, and you have to ask yourself, how do we know anything from history? Well, you look for eyewitness accounts, and you look for actual archaeological evidence, you look for manuscript evidence, and then you look at the, the, the reliability of the authors who were writing it. At the very least, let's apply the same sort of legal and historical methods that we apply to everything else that happened in antiquity and apply it to the stories of the Bible. At the very least... The burden of proof, it seems, in that way, should be on those who want to dispute it. Because we have actual ancient documents explaining that this is what they saw. So how is it that they can be disputed and rejected so readily? And I think usually the argument against miracles is simple. The argument almost always comes down to one thing an anti-supernatural bias. It is the belief that it is untrue because miracles can't happen. That's awfully circular if you're trying to look at a reasonable understanding, an intellectual understanding of these things. You can't simply say the stories can't be true because they're miracles and miracles clearly don't happen. That's not an argument, that's a faith statement. 
There's nothing reasonable or rational about that. You've just decided to have an anti-supernatural bias. See, there is no battle between faith and reason. You know, that's how we like to, to frame it. It's science versus religion. It's faith versus reason. But there is no battle here. Countless scientists have pursued both deep faith and critical scholarship. Thousands, countless. Some would even argue that it was Christianity itself that gave rise to the scientific endeavors because of our conviction that our God was reasonable, that he was intelligent, and that we could, we could know him through the created world. It was Christianity that gave us the, the starting point for our modern scientific methods. How can we say that they're somehow inherently in conflict? They're not. There is even a small but growing trend in universities to attempt an intellectual integration of faith and reason today at some of our preeminent secular universities. Because the information that there is a war between religion and science is 50 years out of date. It's still promoted at the popular level. But it is not at the cutting edge of these conversations. That's why I think it's clear that the scriptures tell us miracles do happen. And if God is possible, then miracles are possible. If God is probable, then miracles can't be taken off the table. And no one has come even remotely close to disproving God. Quite the contrary. Most people who examine the evidence, who engage in this topic, will come away saying, you know, it's probably more likely that God exists than that he doesn't, which is why you'll always still find more agnostics than you will even atheists. Because if you really engage with the material in a philosophical, theological, even scientific way, you will come away most likely, like most people do, saying, it seems like God really does exist. And once you grant that, then you can't take miracles off the table. Once God exists, miracles can as well. Now, when we speak of miracles like this, I just we got to clarify a little bit because we're talking about genuine miracles, not like, you know, the miracles that we all, we throw that word around a lot. And I'm not talking about, you know, like, it's the miracle of life. You know, like they had a baby and it was the miracle of life. Having a baby is beautiful. It's really cool. Had three of my own. It was awesome. But it's not a miracle. We all sort of know, like, the mechanism, right? Like, we know how it happened. If you don't, we've designated Chris as the staff contact for any questions. <laughs> Related to this, he loves these kinds of conversations. So if you don't understand, you can hit him up and he'll just give you any ideas. Uh, but those aren't really proper miracles. You know, you might say to me, I won the lottery. It's a miracle. Listen, you've spent your whole life paying a poor man's tax, spending all sorts of money you didn't need to and shouldn't have been spending on the lottery to shoot for a possible outcome. You won. That's not a miracle. It's unlikely and maybe not so great in the intellectual area, but you, you did it, but it's not a miracle. Now, if you were sitting there at a friend's house watching the numbers 
and all of a sudden a ticket materialized in your hand <gasps> and it was the winning ticket, that would be a miracle, all right? So we're talking about those kinds of miracles here. We're talking about the suspension of normal natural laws that we perceive around us all the time. You know, when something happens that can't be explained by natural laws, then it may be a miracle. And I say maybe a miracle because some things that happen today with technology would seem like miracles, but are simply advanced science. You know, like one day I really hope that we like master the, the you know, the quantum physics thing and we create transporters like in Star Trek. Like that to me is going to, now that will look like a miracle, but if it's actually just us harnessing some really cool things about quantum physics, awesome. I think that would be great. Not a miracle, advanced science. So we're not talking about those kind of things, but we're talking about our genuine miracles. Now anyway, once you grant the, the probability of God, of theism, which I think is way more likely than naturalism, then miracles have to be back on the table. Now, if miracles are not only possible, what if they're actually necessary? Necessary to make sense of the universe as we currently understand it. Because I, I think that's actually a more reasonable view. So according to modern science, right, we know that the universe not only had a beginning, which we call the Big Bang, there is no explanation, by the way, for the singularity that, that is the source of the Big Bang, its origin or its eternal nature. So we have nothing in there yet that we've been able to explore with science. But not only did it have a beginning, the universe is also precisely fine-tuned to support life in a way that defies reason. In addition, it is statistically impossible in any of the measurements given to create life with amino acids in the primordial ooze. Even as an idea on origins, this idea is starting to fade into the background because it is simply statistically impossible for it to take place using the science we, we currently have in the world. There is also the complexity and the interdependencies of the genetic code. There are irreducible complexities at the cellular level, what they call cellular tools in biological systems. There is the human mind, consciousness. When you pile all of these things up, all scientifically understood and validated, when you pile them all up, they present an impossible problem for naturalistic explanations of the world that we currently live in. Based on what we know about the world scientifically, it simply cannot happen in a naturalistic way, which means reason, reason, the mind, now has to compel us to look beyond the natural world. Reason compels us to a designer who has the power and the benevolence to do miracles. See, I'm a Christian not because I took a blind leap of faith, but because I think it makes the most sense of the world and of the human creature as we know it to be. Also, if you're trying to figure out 
If that's not quite enough for you to grant the possibility of miracles or even the probability or necessity, then we have to take in, into consideration that there are many verifiable miracles out there. Now again, I'm not talking about the things that we call miracles, the little coincidences like praying for a parking spot at Roosevelt Field Mall and getting it or anything like that. Though I will say they might be because you know, I've, and I've told you guys stories like this in the past because every once in a while, I'll be asking God for something, I'll be praying about something, I need an answer, and I'll be reading through the scriptures. And all of a sudden, I'll read a story maybe I've read a thousand times before, but it'll hit me in a new way. And I'll just know that it was an answer to my prayer. And I'll know it was for me at this moment, and that a decision actually had come from God through his word at this this happens sometimes, and, for, and, and almost every Christian that I have spoken to about these has similar stories. And we throw out the word miracle because that's what it feels like to us. It feels like there's just, it was statistically impossible, it was too big a coincidence. Maybe for you it was a bumper sticker at just the right time, or it was a sunset in a particular moment, and in a particular way, in a moment of whatever it might be. There are these significant, miraculous little moments, and I'm not downplaying those. I think God does, in fact, interact with us in those ways. I'm just saying, that's your miracle. You can't use that in a broader way. It's not verifiable. We can't, you know, we can't check it out. We can't see the scientific, you know, studies behind it. We can't see the, you know, the, the, the medical scans to prove it or anything like that. That's your miracle. I'm not saying God doesn't do those. I think he does those a lot. But I don't know that they will bolster faith beyond you. But there are, in fact, many verifiable miracles. Some from history, like the resurrection of Christ, Others that are more contemporary, and they can actually be examined using modern scientific methods. One of our favorite scholars, Craig Keener, he set out to do this in some way, and he wrote a book called Miracles. In fact, it's not two copies of the same book. This is one fat book. It's 1,200 pages, where he has outlined not only the philosophical underpinnings of miracles and why they make sense for us to believe in, but he has gone after the the, the experience of the supernatural world that exists all over the planet, which when you read it and you start to make your way through, and I've only gotten through a bit of it, I haven't gotten through nearly 1,200 pages, but if you're inter inter interested in this, this idea, this topic, you can't do it anymore without referencing this book because it's just the magnum opus of this whole conversation. But in there, he makes it plain that if you no longer believe in the supernatural, you're in the minority in the world. The experiences of hundreds of millions of people would say, no, the supernatural does exist, which means that many people experiencing this in so many diverse ways is enough for us to reasonably say, these things happen. They really do happen. So miracles are not only possible, they're not only probable, but they're actually essential to life as our current science explains it. And that's enough to believe in miracles. And of course, that's enough to make it so that the virgin birth is possible. However, there are other reasons why I think we can believe in the virgin birth. And it's not so much the if, but the why. And I just want to spend a few moments thinking about why a virgin birth. I think God did it to grab our attention. I think he wanted to say to us, listen, the virgin birth is something new. 
It's unusual. Jesus is entering into this world. It says in verse 32 that he will be great. And it starts at his birth. Because I think God is trying to say, listen, you need to sit up and take notice here. You need to listen to what's about. You need to watch and see how this is about to unfold. This is something you've never seen, something you've never heard. This is new, and it's big, and it's powerful, and it's for you. I think God's trying to grab our attention, and I think it reveals God's pursuit. There's a miracle in here that God is showing his initiative in chasing us down. In verse 26, it says, God sent the angel. Verse 28, the angel went to her. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come. This is all God's initiative. It's his pursuit of us. And so often we like to think of religion as our pursuit of God. But when you get into the scriptures, the, the greater truth is that God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. I mean, and who doesn't like to be pursued? To have, to catch someone's eye in that way and to have them to look at you and to say, that's a person I want to be. I mean, this is what happened to me. I mean, Cheryl was such a flirt. <laughs> I mean, she was, she chased me down for years and years and years before I finally, I finally succumbed to her temptations. It was out of control. You know, I like it. It was good. It was good to be pursued. And so some are going to text her like, is this true? Is he full of it? So um, you, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? I'm on a spiritual quest. I've been seeking. I would say that's great. But I got to tell you, you're not the only one seeking. Because God is the initiator and he has been seeking you. If you're awakening to spiritual things, if you're here right now because you think you're a spiritual seeker, that's because God is already pursuing you. He's already put it in your heart. He's already put it in your soul. He's already stirred it up in you. He's already come. He has decided that he is going to take his supernatural power and he is going to break through our hard-heartedness and our spiritual deafness. And he's going to use that power to save us. He sends Jesus, whose name means God saves to save us from our sin and our guilt, that every man and woman is caught up in. And that sin is so deep and dangerous that, that we need God to save us. Humanity couldn't do it on our own. It was impossible. We needed someone outside of this created world to save us. We need redeeming because we can't do it on our own. And if we're going to have any hope, God had to act. It had to come from outside of humanity. And he did this to prove his love. You know, it wasn't just the virgin birth. It was the virgin birth. It was an actual birth. You know, Jesus could have, he could have come in any way. He could have come on the clouds, riding some awesome steed, swinging a sword, laying his enemies down. It could have been anything like that, but it's not how he came. God became one of us, a birth. He became vulnerable. He became hurtable. I mean, this blows our categories. You know, what, would it, what was it like? To hold the son of God in your arms. I, mean, I mean, did Mary ever drop him? Yeah. Like, I had three kids. We dropped one of them. 
I can't tell you which one, but like, like you have, it happens, right? Like the stuff like, why would he do this? In the writer of Hebrews, he says, because he himself, Jesus, suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. God did this to prove his love beyond doubt, to prove his love and to be able to experience what we experience, to reveal his power in weakness, because we have a Savior who knows, a Savior who can relate. There is no problem that is too small for his power. There is no problem too big for his love. There is no failure in your past that his healing touch can't fix. There is no fear that is beyond his ability to comfort. See, God's supernatural power is for your greatest good. That's why we have the virgin birth. That's why we have the proof of the miraculous. Because God is breaking into this world with his amazing power. Because he loves you. Because he's seeking you. He's pursuing you. And it takes nothing short of a miracle to reach you and to reach me. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to be leading us in a couple of songs. And as they do that, I'm just going to ask that you would pray with me. Father, we know, Lord, that you are our great hope. We know that it's your supernatural power that has made this world and all of us in it. And we know, Lord, that you can do miraculous births. And that's such good news for us, Lord, because that's what we need. Not, not that we need a virgin birth, Lord, but we need a new birth. We need a miraculous birth. We need a spiritual rebirth. We know that we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses and that we were moving away from you in rebellion. And in your pursuit of us, Lord, you've awakened us and you've called us home. You're using your incredible power for our good. We're asking, Lord, that you would do this more and more. Reveal yourself and let us yield to this revelation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.